Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. Today, we bring you the story of the whoopee cushion emperor, who did a lot more than that. Anyway, my name is Ben. Yeah, Ben. Noel here. Uh, he did a lot of stuff. And you know what? There's one thing that I think we can both agree on is we love a good, corrupt, decadent Roman emperor story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, for the podcast. Now, of course, going into this, we do have to establish that um, with powerful figures of old, especially for some reason, Roman emperors and maybe popes, uh, whenever you hear their stories, especially past a certain historic threshold, you have to assume that there's some exaggeration, a little bit of the equivalent of tabloid writing in the mix there, but just just from the jump. Uh, we, we do have to say take some of this with a pillar of salt, uh, but we had a lot of fun telling our super producer, Casey Pegram, some of the highlights of this guy's career uh, before we even recorded. Yeah, we did. You know, there's there's no nipping minnows in this one, if, if you'll all recall that from uh, Ridiculous Histories of Yore. Uh, who is that? What, what, what decadent emperor had the nipping minnows with the... The castrated uh, young boys that would pretend to be little fishies nipping at his heels in the the bathing pools. Um, this there is decadence of that caliber in this story, uh, but this one is almost more about what the greater Roman population might consider uh, heresy or sacrilege. Right, this is how this emperor really put it. It wasn't the decadence or the hedonism or the orgiastic behavior. It was really kind of just dissing their pantheon mm-hmm. yeah that earlier the nippy minnows guy that you just mentioned Noel, that was tiberius ah yes yes uh and he did other things i think that's just what we latched onto because it was so raunchy and so weird uh today's story is about an emperor a heretic a uh, a problem child 
if anybody recalls that film franchise, especially in his early days, uh, who is known most commonly today as Elagabalus, which is, love him or hate him, that's just a fun name to say. Elagabalus. It sounds like a spell. Elagabalus is hella fabulous uh, <laughs> I, when it comes to a name. Uh, uh, and it's a name that was, I love I love the idea of giving yourself a name, right? Um, and that, that is what this uh, this young man did. His official name was a little less sexy, if uh, very convoluted. It was Caesar, Marcus, Aurelius, Antoninus, Augustus. Mm-hmm. Which was a political choice as well. It was kind of, it was meant to tie him into uh all of these legitimacy <laughs> right. in the public eye which is which is a cool thing that you can't get away with as often today like popes choose their names but uh you know podcasters <laughs> spoiler alert uh podcasters can't just go out and say well my name is uh Karen Kilgraf uh, Marin Glass marsupial I don't know marsupial, but I, you know, I'll back you up. Yes, and <laughs> I just, I just want to, I just think marsupial sounds like a Roman name. I, I, I would yeah. love to see that used more in in, uh, in naming uh, culture, I guess. And maybe when I say he gave himself the name uh, Elagabalus, that's not quite right. It was largely kind of a nickname, I guess, because his real name or his official name was so convoluted and confusing and easy to construe with other, you know, because every single one of these, Caesar, Marcus, Aurelius, Antoninus, Augustus, uh, were all other huge figures that loomed large in Roman political culture. In fact, I believe, Ben, he was referred to often by detractors as the false Antoninus or fake Antoninus. Yes, you are correct, Noel. Uh, the name Marcus Aurelius Severus Antoninus was the identical name of an earlier emperor name now known as Caracalla. So they they cha- people only refer to Elagabalus as Elagabalus after his death. Spoiler alert: he's not with us today, uh, and that was probably that was probably to differentiate him from. This other guy who was like three emperors before him who had the exact same name. So totally understand that. And, and what I was, I, I kind of uh, stepped on my own story there. Uh, what I was getting at was the name Elagabalus came from the fact that uh, his mother, uh, Julia, I'm going to try my best at this, Soamias, uh, S-O-A-E-M-I-A-S, Soamias, I'm going to say, but, you know, whatever. Correct me if I'm wrong, folks. Uh, th- this part of his family uh, came from Syria and uh, worshipped a particular sun deity uh, by the name of Elagabal, which to me just sounds like something out of Dune. Uh, obviously, Dune probably took a lot of inspiration from this part of the world. Um, and it was, yes, an Emocene sun god. Uh, and he, as a youth, was uh, what's called a hereditary priest of this god. And this is something that's going to follow him and that he's going to really double down on when he starts getting into Roman politics. Absolutely. Yeah. And this was, uh, you could tell from the title, folks, hereditary priesthood uh, means that he was able to get this position due to the family of his mother, Julia Soamius. Uh, his maternal grandmother, Julia Mesa, was also 
involved with this, and she was the elder sister of one Julia Domna, who was the wife of Septimius Severus, uh, the emperor of Rome, founder of the Severan dynasty. A lot of Julias here. A lot of Julias. A lot of Julias. People were like, you know, you find people back then treated names the way Bernie Sanders treats coats. You find one good one, you keep the good one. Uh, so the guy we call Elagabalus today was born around 203 CE in, as as you said, Noel, in Syria, uh, the city that is today known as Homs. This gives us some weird perspective. First off, the way he gets to become emperor is super sketchy. It's a great story, uh, but I want to plant a seed for a little bit of perspective. Mm -hmm. So recently here in the U.S., a new president was elected. That president is Joe Biden, and Joe Biden is the only the second Catholic ever elected to the office of the presidency uh, in the history of this country. The other one was JFK. Thankfully, right. our, our country's gone, I would like to say, progressed a bit such that it's not a huge deal or controversial. But we'll see how religion and religious affiliation plays a huge role in the real controversy surrounding Elagabalus. Like, people were calling him this, you know, this false emperor uh, for a number of reasons. His bedside manner didn't help. So he's he's got he's set up for success. You know, he's born into the upper echelons. He's part of the priesthood class. He's got some connects with the ruling dynasty. Uh, the Severan dynasty was from 193 to about 235 CE. So he's born during this dynasty and he has a connect with them. Uh, his mom and his maternal grandmother, both Julia's, were crucial uh, Pro probably the puppeteers behind the scheme to raise him to the throne of Rome. And uh, as we see often occurring in ancient monarchies, they th there's a good argument that they were pretty much in control of the empire, especially when Elagabalus was in his younger days. Wouldn't you say? I would say that, Ben. And I got to get it out of my system real quick before we progress too far. Whenever I hear the word severin, or Severus, the first thing I think of is the Velvet Underground song, Venus in Furs, uh, and the lyric goes, Severin, Severin, speak so slightly, Severin, down on your bended knee, taste the whip in love, not given lightly, taste the whip, now bleed for me. So, I mean, I, obviously this is a reference to that kind of S&M hedonism of this particular era of, of Roman culture. I mean, it's, it's spread throughout. We see it, but the particularly kind of kinky behavior. And mm. I mean, the name of the song is Venus in Furs, after all. Oh, well, let me let me get this out of my system then. I, I'm going to only reference it once. It, the whole time I was reading and researching the uh, Severus dynasty here, I was just picturing Snape from Harry Potter. Also like, a thing, yes. Born again <laughs> and again, just using a different name. Or he wouldn't even have to in Rome because apparently people didn't use different names. You just got posthumous nicknames. It's a very interesting uh, way of going about things and also makes for very confusing timelines because we see, you know, even within the same era, all of these same names popping up over and over again. So, and, 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 and the, the story that we're getting to about how uh, Elagabalus became emperor is in and of itself, like you said, Ben, super shady, but also 
very complex and convoluted. So we're going to do our best to kind of maybe fast track it and then get to the, uh, the hedonistic stuff, the juicy stuff. We know why you're listening folks. Yeah. Yeah. Let's we'll, we'll go through this. Uh, we'll, we may have to uh, make up our own nicknames for some of the people, because again, this gets convoluted partially I'd argue because of the names. It reminds me of that great Marquez novel, 100 years of solitude, which just, if you've read it, you know, one of the toughest parts is following all these people with the same names. Anyway, here's what happens. Caracalla, the guy we mentioned earlier, uh, he is assassinated in 217 BCE. This death uh, marks a, a kind of break, a loss of power for the Severan dynasty. And the next emperor, Macrinus, is not a member of this family associated with that previous dynasty. Macrinus was set up well. He was a praetorian prefect under Caracalla. Uh, he's also the guy who orchestrated the coup, killed the emperor, and then seized the throne. And he wanted to get rid of anybody who might contest his rule, including people who were members of the previous emperor's family, even if they were kind of distant members. Because of that, he exiled Elagabalus and his family back to their estate in Syria. But it turns out that he may be, Macrinus may be underestimated just how badly the emperor's family wanted to return to power. So why is Syria so involved in Roman politics? I know that Rome like annexed a part of Syria. And then, so I guess like, like in 64 BC, so that would have been long before this period. So I guess they just kind of became intertwined. So there could have been like Syrian families because of that relationship that, that moved up in the pecking order. Yeah, it's like it's it was a, a, a important province of the empire. So it, it definitely was part of the empire. It was just also considered like because of the way assimilation works, they're they're probably considered a little bit culturally different. The thing is, uh, Macrinus sort of made a fatal error when he underestimated uh, the. I guess the staying power that the Severan dynasty had and, and how much uh, the uh, family of Karkala really, really, really did not want to give up that power uh, once they've gotten the taste of it. I mean, you know, it'd be a hard sell for anyone if you've been used to being the family of literally the emperor to all of a sudden, oh, there's a coup and now your life's completely different. But often I think fear or just self-preservation would take over. But in this case, what took over was a desire to take back the throne, claw it back, in fact. So Julia Maesa, uh, Maesa let's say, um, was the sister-in-law to Septimus Severus. Okay, this is where it gets a little confusing. Also was grandmother to Elagabalus. Um, and she was very, very, very gifted at conniving and, um, you know, making moves uh, behind closed doors and double crossing and every flavor of uh, what we would today almost consider like espionage, but it's really just political maneuvering. So she decided she was going to make it her goal. Uh, above all else, to get her family back on the throne. So she and her two daughters, uh, the other two Julias, Julia Soimius and Julia Mamia, Mamia um, they were going to work together and conspire to destroy Macrinus. I'm just, I'm just laughing because as soon as uh, we got to the other Julia, 
Mamma Mia. In my head, it's just Mamma Mia, Mamma Mia. <laughs> Mamma Mia, let me go. <laughs> so, yeah, so she said, okay, well, let's get rid of this Macronist guy. He's a dirtbag. He's a pill. I've got an idea. I've got a pitch for you. Let's keep it in the family. How about my grandson, Elagabalus? Uh, he's, he's legitimate, and uh, we can strengthen his claim to the throne with a little bit of a story. You know, someone told me, a little bird told me, I heard through the grapevine, word on the street, that Elagabalus is actually the illegitimate son of Caracalla, the emperor who got assassinated. And it's weird because Elagabalus did look like he resembled Caracalla. If you saw their faces together, you could, you know, you could see it. But he was, in fact, uh, just a cousin of that emperor. Uh, still, at this time, his fortunes are looking good because while they're in exile in Syria, he's inherited his family position as high priest. And he was currently worshiping that sun god we mentioned earlier, Elagabal the, the uh, god of the mountain, the stone god of the mountain in his home city of Syria. And it gets a little Lovecraftian, which is super cool. We'll get into it. So this god from what we call Roman Syria, the worship of this, Elagabal, this was a widespread cult in the empire in the second century. And the religion was eventually kind of assimilated into Helios, the, the Roman sun god. And that's why one of Helios's street names was Heliogabalus, which is a variant of Elagabalus, which eventually became this emperor's posthumous nickname. That was a lot, but I think we got there. Does that make I sense? think we got there. It does make sense. Um, and again, if anybody that's more into the minutia of this power struggle, there's certainly materials out there for you to check out. We're doing our best to get through it. Um, but there, you know, if you want to, if that's the part that that really interests you, highly recommend this National Geographic piece from uh, Juan Pablo Sanchez, published in March of 2019. Uh, and there's, again, tons of other material. There's also a really good YouTube video mm -hmm. uh, that I found that's about a half an hour and, and talks a lot about the Fact whole power feast. struggle. That's the right. That's the Fact one. Fact yep. Yeah, I, I, I dig that one. I dig mm -hmm. that one. It's a, it's part of a series on the 10 most evil Roman exactly. emperors. Exactly. Well narrated. <laughs> lots of good imagery. Highly recommend that one. Live footage. Live footage. Yeah. Reenactments of orgies. No, not quite, uh, but close. Um, but yeah, no, it's interesting in general how Rome always well, in, in okay, so let's look at Greek and Roman religious pantheons, how there's always kind of a like a, a like a um analog god, you know what I mean, between the Ooh. two cultures. And because Rome conquered so many different um cultures they assimilated a lot of different religions. So they're like, well, you don't need, you know, Elagabal. You've got, uh, who is it, Ben? Helios. Helios, right? But that wasn't doing it for Elagabalus, was it? No, not at all. I mean, religious syncretism is a huge tool of empires because it's it's super effective, which I feel like I accidentally quoted a video game there. But uh, you're right. Elagabalus wasn't having it. Uh, he said, you know, I'm the high priest of this. I kind of know what I'm talking about, guys. Uh, and it's it's not not the same thing. Anyway, uh, the Roman government initially supported 
Macrinus, because Macrinus is the, the ruling emperor and he kills people to take their thrones. Mm -hmm. So when Macrinus said, this Elagabalus kid is an idiot, he's a real piece of work. Uh, Not hella fabulous at all. No, no, the opposite. Uh, he started calling him the false Antoninus and he said, look, I am well aware of this kid and he is insane. You do not want him in power, which would later actually turn out to be the case. So yeah. the Senate listened to their emperor and they said, you know what? Good point, emperor. We're going to declare war on this guy and his mom. However, mom, she has a plan. They say, we're going to declare war on this guy and his grandmother. But the grandmother has a plan. She's not going to let people dissuade her from her scheme to get her grandson on the throne. So she goes to the Roman troops stationed in Syria, the third legion, and she bribes them into supporting her, her cause. Uh, and this kind of, this kind of hamstrings Macrinus's forces in the area. She bought out the troops that he was going to use basically. Yeah. A hundred percent. And with that support and with this, uh, you know, seemingly legit, you know, Severin pedigree, right? Elagabalus was presented to the centurion Publius Valerius Camazon and his troops. Um, and he was he was convinced he, he was good. So the military essentially uh, decreed that he was the new emperor of Rome. Does that about cover it, Ben? Yeah, that gets us there. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X. Visit TomboyX.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car. I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know, I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonneville's. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one, and that was a that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I meant I said El Camino, <laughs> and I meant Monte Carlo. 
I miss it so. Uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos, and the last one, God bless it, I just I I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally, it, it still was like a a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now. Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So, this is New Emperor of Rome. Other legions in the East follow with their own recognition. So now the empire is in an unstable state, uh, no pun intended, uh, meaning that the, there, there are two people claiming to be the emperor. Uh, Elagabalus had a tutor, a eunuch named Ganes, who later became a general, and Ganes would go on to defeat Macrinus in Antioch, in modern-day Turkey, just like le- not even a month later. So Marinus is defeated, and he flees on June 8th, 218 CE. Uh, He is executed at Cappadocia. They also catch his son and kill his son. And so Elagabalus declares his victory to be the beginning of his reign as the emperor of Rome. He is 15 years old. He takes all the titles uh, and then he goes instantly into diplomacy, or his mother and grandmother do, uh, because he sends these letters, uh, these like, Let's bury the hatchet letters to the Senate in Rome. And the way that these letters are phrased, from what we can tell, uh, is very much like, hey, you can you can get with the times. You can ride the wave with me or you can drown when it crashes. So the senators knew they were getting an offer they couldn't refuse. It was Mm kind of gangster. Uh, So they went along with it. And boom, the Severan dynasty is back in play. but. Pretty quickly, as they're traveling to Rome, we start to see some unusual behavior on the part of the new emperor. Yeah, what we might call historical weird flexes, but not nothing like too out of the ordinary. I mean, he he liked fine clothing. He would drape himself in the finest purple raiments embroidered with golden, uh, what do you call, accoutrement, you know? He, he was like basically iced up, you know, wearing heavy necklaces and bracelets adorned with the finest of, of precious jewels and medals. And uh, he even gave him, he crowned himself, um, and also like, like this, I don't know from reading this, I'm, maybe I'm a little confused about the imagery here, but it makes it sound like he was wearing a crown, uh, and a tiara. <laughs> he <laughs> like, was just extra. He was an he was, extra was mega extra. Yeah. Golden jewels, all that stuff. Uh, and he had like a crew following him around that would accompany his every move with flutes and 
fifes and, and drums and all that. Um, and he was just constantly like strutting around and like really being very performative with his, uh, with his behavior. Uh, and he would openly participate in these orgiastic, let's call them services or rituals, uh, in, you know, devotion to his God, uh, Elagabal. Right, right. In service of this religion. So he's, he's, yeah, he could be considered a bit of a peacock, a bit vain, a bit, uh, strut forward. Uh, he was accused in later uh, historical writings of living in a, quote, depraved manner, engaging in unnatural vice with dudes. We all know what that means. Uh, the troops who were stationed nearby were kind of digging it. They were like, this is a great show. You know, this is before Cirque du Soleil. This is the best they could get, right? So they're like, this is, this is a heck of a show. So they would travel to his temple and watch him do his priestly duties and they were just taken in by the spectacle of it. Uh, but but that, that was all before he was the emperor. He was just an exiled person at that time. Now that he is the dude in charge of the Roman Empire, the soldiers are less and less impressed. And according to a work called the Historia Augusta, the soldiers soon began to regret that they had conspired against Macrinus in the beginning. And they were starting to think, I don't know. Is this kid really going to be a good emperor? And the soldiers weren't the only ones worried, Noel. Even Elagabalus's grandmother, who was largely responsible for this scheme, started to think, I don't know if my grandson, you know, I love him to death. El Gabal, bless him. I don't know if my grandson is fit to be emperor. He's, uh, he's, he's being a little out there. He really did seem a little out there. And there are some accounts from uh, various historians and firsthand uh, observers of this behavior, one of whom was Herodian, uh, who wrote uh, that Julia Misa, the, the grandmother in question here, was, quote, greatly disturbed and tried again and again to persuade the youth to wear Roman dress when he entered the city uh, to visit the Senate, um, fearing that uh, his appearance obviously foreign and wholly barbaric would offend those who saw him. So again, like the, not only are these, these outfits that he's flexing, you know, super extra and ostentatious and over the top, they represent a completely different culture. And there is kind of a need in this situation, if you're coming from a different culture, uh, to at least give the appearance of, you know, respect or not maybe not full assimilation, but Ooh. certainly not just outright flouting of the culture that you're coming into, right? Yeah, absolutely. Think about it this way. So there's there's already been great instability. When you, the average Roman citizen, see your new emperor, you want to think, that emperor, hey, they look Roman. They look like someone I could sit down and have a cup of wine with. Uh, and they look like someone who would be a Roman emperor. And they act that way too, uh, as low as the bar is for well-behaving emperors. If this person looks different, if they look as though they are from a foreign culture, then the average Roman citizen and the average Roman soldier and the average Senate member may feel on some level less like members of the Roman Empire, more like members of an occupied state. You know what I mean? There's there's a lot to be said for this. Now, these things are all happening. This kind of soup is stirring and simmering. The party arrives in Rome. 
And when they get to Rome, a lot of people who remained loyal to Macrinus are executed, the way Macrinus and his son were killed. And a lot of people in the Senate are left alone. They already got those letters of amnesty and reconciliation. Uh, however, other high-ranking imperial officers whose loyalty was in question, uh, they were at the very least dismissed. And then they were, <laughs> this is so ridiculous, they were replaced by goons from Syria, people that just like the the grandmother and the kid liked them. And Elagabalus, again, he's a teenager. He's ignoring most of like the day-to-day -day job of being an emperor, the details, the decisions. Uh, this is left up to his mother and his grandmother, who become the first women who are given permission to attend the Roman Senate, and they're even given senatorial positions. So we'll, we'll see this pattern. I would argue that his mother and his grandmother were probably well qualified to be in the Senate, but we see this pattern of this emperor hiring unqualified people for very important positions. And, you know, long story short, the, the way they write it in, a, in an article by History Things is this. It could only go downhill from there. It's not, a, uh, it's not an exaggeration because as soon as this guy's in Rome, emperoring full-time, he's just, he's awash in controversy. It's one thing after the other. It's always something with Elagabalus. That's right, because it seems that more important to him uh, than the idea of being the emperor of Rome was what we talked about at the very beginning of the episode. This identity that was very important to him as being the high priest of Elagabal. Um, it was, you know, the, the, the emperor stuff wasn't of that much importance to him. Uh, it wasn't really something that was top of mind. Um, so, and, and, and yet he is at the, uh, pinnacle of power in Rome and in this position where he can essentially, uh, do what he wants. I mean, obviously we know that, uh, this can have really gnarly, uh, implications over time, but you know, it's hard to to convince somebody who has absolute power that they are going to be their own uh, undoing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's not something that they want to hear, you know. It, and the thing is, in social environments like this, uh, sycophants have the advantage. The yes folk uh, will tend to win the emperor's opinion. So something happens almost immediately that scandalizes the population from members of Senate to just the average uh, Jewish and Christian people living in the empire. Uh, as you said, Noel, Elagabalus feels, I guess the best way to say it is, he feels like a high priest who later became emperor, but is still a priest. And so he says, away with the old religions. We're going to replace the old traditional religion of Rome, in a large part stolen from the Greeks, uh, with this other religion that I'm a high priest of, the worship of Elagabal. This Syrian god is even going to replace Jupiter, the, uh, the primary god of Roman mythology. And so to do this, this is what I feel like is Lovecraftian. I might just be reading tea leaves here. I, or You know what? I just love horror stories. Anyway, to, to do this, to make this official in his mind, Elagabalus has a stone brought from Syria nearly 2,000 miles to Rome. It's a symbol of his religion. It's a black conical-shaped 
rock that may have been a meteorite, and he installs it on the Palatine Hill, which is a, you know, a, a prestigious place. So it's clearly visible. This is where we introduce Cassius Dio. Cassius Dio writes a thing called Roman history. Uh, he is one of the people who has on written record called this emperor the false Antoninus. Uh, and what what did he have to say about it? Oh, quite a bit, Ben. <laughs> quite a bit. He had, he had uh, some pretty early historical hot takes to offer. Um, he said of uh, the false Antoninus, uh, the offense consisted not in his introducing a foreign god into Rome, Okay, or in his exalting in very strange ways, but in his placing him even before Jupiter himself and causing himself to be voted his priest. So just just to take a pause here, he's essentially saying that he was trying to supplant uh, the popular religion, you know, which was was very very important to, to, to the Roman people and to the, yeah, that's the important part here. It's important to the Roman people. I mean, you could argue that in the same way religion is used as a political tool in America today or in, in just, you know, geopolitical affairs uh, in Rome, likely, you know, sure, there are some true believers in the Senate and, and in politics, but it was largely a tool to really control people. And when you turn the people against you, that's going to cause some problems. Okay. So not only did he supplant the popular religion of choice. He also made himself like the head of it. It's like appointing yourself the Pope of a religion that nobody wants anything to do with. Um, furthermore, this is back to uh, Cassius Dio. He was frequently seen even in public clad in the barbaric dress, which the Syrian priests used. And this had as much to do as anything with his receiving the nickname, the Assyrian. Long story short, Elagabalus does not care. He builds a temple called the Elagabalium to this, to this god on that same hill where the stone now rests. Uh, he continues the schedule of sacrifices to the stone and the god. Cows and sheep, for sure. Uh, some of the more sensational accounts allege that humans were sacrificed in honor of this god of the mountain. And wine was mixed with blood from the sacrifices poured out as offerings apparently he didn't respect any other religious movement other you know aside from his own because he's the high priest it's good to be king high priest and emperor you're like double king that's amazing so imagine the equivalent of pr agency uh, his his supporters his real masters the mom and the grandmother are like okay we got to do something we got to manage the public image mm -hmm. uh, Let's get him married to a respectable family or families. That's right. Uh, they, this was like a political maneuver, like a diplomatic kind of uh, play, let's say. Uh, he would ultimately go on to have three wives, uh, uh, one of which was a Julia, a Julia, Paula, uh, Ania, uh, Faustina, and Aquilia Severa. Um, and the last of those, uh, Aquilia Severa, was a particularly contentious one in terms of the way it was perceived by the public because she was known as what was called a Vestal Virgin, which, Ben, is a term that I think we, we, we hear thrown around sort of in like colloquial, could be thrown around like colloquially, but it was absolutely like a thing. Right. Like a, a particularly high, um, not honor necessarily, but it was, uh, yeah, sacred almost. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the Vestal Virgins were 
consecrated to Vesta, part of their consecration involved a vow of chastity, and their job was to keep the sacred fire burning at the goddess's altar. Uh, Vestal Virgins, by the way, we don't do comic book recommendations the way we used to. Vestal Virgins uh, appear in a great comic series called Britannia, which I recommend checking out. It's uh, no spoilers. It's a, Nero is in this one, not uh, Elagabalus, but who he deserves his own comic, or his grandmother certainly does. Uh, but you're right, Vestal Virgins are real things. So in attempting to assimilate further into Roman society and get approval from the well-to-do Romans at the time, uh, the, he goes too far. And now he offends them even more because he's knocking up Vestal virgins, and he says uh, he also doesn't care. He says, quote, there's nothing more appropriate than the marriage of a priest to a priestess. He says this to the Senate, and then he also he also says they will have godlike children. He's like, mm. you don't understand. We're this is like a super soldier program. That's interesting, Ben. Because I mean, I, I gotta wonder. Like, it, it doesn't seem to me that he's. I think he's just a little bit clueless, maybe, and not like outright trying to piss people off. Like, I really wonder if he is trying to like looking at this as almost a gesture of like joining my religion to your religion and creating Ooh. some sort of hybrid super deity that has the powers, the superpowers of both. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's it. I mean. That's a really good uh, good point. Definitely, there's arrogance in there. That's you know, you're raised as a high priest, you become emperor. But it may be that he simply culturally did not understand. Like he may not have been trying to purposely bait people or be uh, a source of such controversy. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating Pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know, I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonnevilles. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, I said El Camino <laughs> and I met Monte Carlo. 
I miss it so. Uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos, and the last one, God bless it, I just I I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally, but it, it still was like a a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now. Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. He keeps going. And he's so extra. Uh, He has these elaborate processions where elephants, tigers, and lions are pulling chariots up the Vatican Hill and they're trampling over these tombs that are in their way. So like they're going through this graveyard. Uh, And then he also also has this weird kind of lottery system that he plays with giving away stuff. Uh, He likes to go to the population like while he's presiding at various games, he likes to go to the population and give them what he calls chances. They're essentially presents that are completely arbitrary and up to him. Like one day he might throw a nice stake out in the crowd or hundreds of gold coins. And he, he did this because he liked to watch people run and, and scramble in the dirt for this stuff. But then another day he might just throw out a dead dog. You never know what you're going to get on the Elagabalus show. Exactly. It really is kind of a a weird twisted lotto. Um, did we talk about the uh, the 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 next uh, kind of big public kerfuffle, the divorce? Oh no, we didn't. But yes, there was a divorce. There That's were several right. divorces. That's right. Remember Paula? Mm. That was Julia. Uh, Julia Paula. Uh, he divorced her, claiming that she had some kind of blemish on her body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was his first wife. And in doing that, before the divorce was official, he uh, basically moved in with Aquila Severa. Um, so that was against the law, against Roman mm-hmm. law and custom. And also because she was the one that was consecrated to Vesta. Um, and he, according to the account from Cassius Dio, impiously defiled her. Yes, yeah impiously defiled uh, and in order to prevent co- uh, further controversy that marriage was also dissolved so picture his pr team history will tell you this guy had between three to five wives uh so he was he was going through it and he was also doing stuff like uh throwing parties where he might serve fake food just for the lulls like food made of wax or marble, or stone. And there's one story, unproven, unconfirmed, that says, once upon a time, he threw so many flower petals on his dinner guests that some of them almost suffocated. But 
these are these are childish pranks, and there is a reason we called them the the whoopee cushion emperor at the top. Uh, there is stuff we have to mention. Now, this may not be appropriate for all audiences. We're gonna maybe Noel. I I propose that maybe we veer away from stuff that might be too too graphic. Yeah, for sure. Okay, but we have to talk about his reputation for being an absolute hedonist. For sure. Uh, you know, like I said, I was setting up for that at the top of the show with that uh, Velvet Underground quote, <laughs> the whole taste the whip situation. Uh, but his his stuff went even deeper than just uh, your everyday, you know, uh, kinks, right? Yeah, yeah. So he had, he had this street rep as a guy who just couldn't control himself and didn't bother to. Uh, the Augustan history describes it as this, quote, he had never had intercourse with the same woman twice except his wife, and he opened brothels in his house for his friends, his clients, and his slaves. On one occasion, he gathered all the city's prostitutes in the forum and appeared before them in a woman's costume and with protruding bosom. And it's this that actually, um, you know, and, and, and I think it was that YouTube video that, that we, we talked about, Ben, sort of credits him as being one of the first trans people in history. Yes. Yeah. We'll come to find out that according to a couple sources, uh, he once went to physicians and asked for surgery uh, and wanted them to construct uh, female genitalia in his body. And because this story is found in Cassius Dio and not the other two ancient sources, it's, it's still up for debate. Uh, he also reportedly was attempting to become a eunuch priest of a sort, a real, uh, this is a real thing called a gallus, mm -hmm. but he was convinced to undergo just circumcision instead. So, the, you know, there's a lot culturally that doesn't quite translate, uh, but to your point, yeah, the, there is something to this. People have argued this case about his uh, gender identification. He was assigned male at birth, but um, the language I think didn't really exist to describe this at the time. Um, either way, Rome is just continually scandalized by this. Yes, and for sure. Uh, and what we're talking about here with this like forum kind of event was it's essentially like a sexual Olympics almost with him as the sole judge, right? Um, and there were uh, charioteers and athletes and slaves that would participate in this and that would also attend to his individual private uh, sexual needs. Um, and he became so fond of a particular uh, charioteer named Heracles uh, he started referring to him openly as his husband. Um, and he, you know, had a kind of a, you know, a, a harem, I guess, of, of lovers on the side. Uh, like you said, Ben, he never claimed to never have sex with the same person more than once except for his wife. But it did seem like Heracles would have been uh, in this smaller group of recurring um, lovers uh, would have been, you know, a little bit different. But he you know, would gravitate towards those that were open to his particular kinks and, and would allow him to kind of discover uh, and push these boundaries, right? Yeah, and there's, there's uh, even the story that Elagabalus would deliberately put himself in situations where he would be discovered sleeping with other people uh, entirely in the hopes that his husband, uh, Heracles, would quote-unquote punish him. 
so so there's very I agree there's a little bit of kink to this. So long story short, it doesn't take much for all the people who are disapproving of this guy to start talking about him and saying, you know, he's unsuited for the role of emperor. He spends so much more time dancing around that gosh darn temple and buying exotic food and gold chamber pots. He does it like, <laughs> what What emperoring does this guy actually do? And there are uprisings, especially in some of the more distant provinces. Uh, this is weird because picture Elagabalus, still young, while and out. His whole life is like an episode of MTV's Cribs. Uh, but every so often, maybe in the middle of the night, he's looking out the window and he's thinking of what that Syrian oracle told him long ago. It makes me think of Cersei in Game of Thrones, who uh, is visited by an oracle or a, 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 a seer uh, when she's a child and is told that, like, everyone she loves is going to die and all this stuff. Um, to have that in your head, you know, and it caused you to maybe act a certain way because a lot of stock was put into these types of predictions. Uh, and and uh, he was warned by this oracle that uh, he should expect a short life and a violent death. Um, and so again, he, um, in the same way that Cersei was always trying to keep people at arm's length and protect her children and all of that, um, he preferred the idea of being in control, being able to kill himself rather than being assassinated. So he kept this stockpile of silver daggers and poison, uh, and he had a tall tower built and adorned with diamonds and gold so that at the moment uh, when he, you know, like the Hitler bunker type moment, um, he would ascend this tower and throw himself to his death before being taken alive and tortured and then ultimately, you know, killed. Mm -hmm. There's also where you find out that uh, he apparently also only wore Chinese silk mm. when when possible because he wanted to leave a good looking corpse. Of course, uh, right? Despite all of all of his preparations, the tower, the daggers, and so on, uh, he had an ignoble end. His grandmother masterminded the end of his career. Uh, she convinced him to adopt his 12-year-old cousin, Alexander, as his official successor. Alexander, not being completely crazy, uh, became kind of popular throughout Roman society, doubtlessly because he had the support of people who wanted anyone but Elagabalus here. Uh, so Elagabalus smells something on the wind. Uh, he thinks his cousin is a serious rival starts planning to kill this 12-year-old, and so the family argues about it. On March 11th, 222 CE, Elagabalus orders the execution of his cousin, and the Praetorian Guard refuses. Ooh. They support Alexander instead. Twist. Feels like a coup. Uh, they were probably bribed by the emperor's grandmother. She bribes a lot of people in this story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But why? She was seeing the the, the the tides turning, right? The the uh the tides of public support completely uh turning in in, in away from, you know, her uh, grandson who she had installed through the same type of behavior, the same type of underhanded uh double dealings. And now she sees the end uh in sight, right? For her. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So this is a move of self-preservation. Remember, we said this emperor was not really doing the day-to-day -day stuff. So who was? Probably Julia, probably the grandmother orchestrating the moves of the empire. So from her perspective, 
if I can slot out my crazy grandson who's not really working out and put in this other kid who's not as crazy but is younger and more pliable, then I can just continue business as usual, you know? So she watches, she watches Elagabalus get stabbed to death by his own soldiers at the age of 18. And his mother, Julia's daughter, is executed as well, beheaded, yep. dragged through the streets. Yeah. Eventually, I think they, they try to dump him in a sewer, but the sewer's too small or something. I think they try to jump, they dumped him. I know that at one point they do dump his headless body into the river, the Tiber River. Yeah, yeah. I, I read that uh, they tried the sewer first and it wouldn't work. And so they said, okay, let's tie something heavy to this body and then throw it in the river. Uh, that's not, that's not a peaceful way to go. As soon as the Senate hears about it, they condemn his memory. They immediately name Alexinus the new emperor who becomes, uh, who rules until 235, when he is also, you guessed it, folks, assassinated. Emperor is it like a good job to keep while you have it, but their retirement plan is terrible. Oh my God, yes. I mean, you never really hear about many emperors living to the ripe old age of, of, of whatever, 30, I guess would have been for the time, and, and uh, retiring, you know, uh, peacefully. Usually involves a lot of stabby stabs. Mm -hmm. And this, this ends the story of Elagabalus, uh, to, so we're not ending on a completely dire note. Uh, at dinner parties, he was also known to slip what he called air pillows, under his friends of low status. Those are animal <laughs> platters. So those were whoopee cushions, to be clear. Oh, <laughs> it wasn't all terrible. What a delight. Sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm picturing this. So you would literally take a dried, a cured of some kind animal bladder uh, and blow it up, and then it, it, you'd sit on it and it'd make a, a fart sound. Whoopee. Yeah. Uh, so so this so that's not the most light note, but this is this is a really interesting story. And it it has so much it has so much tied into it. I think one important thing we can say, there are a lot of takeaways for us in the modern day, but one important thing we can say here, Noel, is that we're we're pretty lucky uh not to live in an age where an entire nation can be ruled by uh, a twelve or fourteen year old. I hope that's not a hot take. I'm glad. I'm glad that I'm glad you have to have a, a, a few more qualifications than just the genetic lottery of birth. Oh, totally. And, and the more we, whenever we do these types of, you know, uh, insane Roman, you know, unhinged leader stories, it really does make me realize that George R. R. Martin was definitely, I think, pulling just as much influence from this part of history and this part of the world than he was from, say, European history. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I agree. You know, uh, Game of Thrones has a huge basis in the War of the Roses, but Martin pulls from uh, so many other cultures and societies in quite a great way. George, if you happen to listen to this podcast, turn it off. Get back to writing Winds of Winter, man. I've got your back. I know it's tough. I think he's checked out at this point, Ben. I don't know. I'm not giving up on this, Noel. I'm not giving up. He's he's going to make that book. It's going to be fantastic. And I am never going to start a fantasy series again unless the thing is already written in its entirety. Maybe he's just waiting for the backlash to die down a little bit from that abysmal ending of the series. 
Uh, <sighs> so people kind of give people a chance to forget uh, because I think it might be a tall order people who are so let down by that ending to go ahead and pick up a book and like rehash it all over again just to see if he does a better job when you don't necessarily know if he, he did or not. Yeah, that's true. It's a Schrodinger's plot at this point, isn't it? We don't know. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, I know a lot of people were disappointed with, with that last season, but how, how wonderful uh, the good moments of it were, you know, Agreed. No, no spoilers if people haven't seen it. Um, but you know, uh, in, t- in trying times like this, Noel, super producer, Casey Pegram, I like to, uh, lift my spirits with a warm cup of Joe in my ridiculous history mug. How, how, how pointless is it to plug this on our audio podcast? Not, not pointless <laughs> at all, Ben, because you too can see, not only can you see what this beautiful piece of uh, ceramics looks like, you can get one for yourself along with t-shirts uh, and, and other, you know, accoutrement. Like, I believe you can get yourself a mouse pad. Um, and there's a bunch of new designs on here that are pretty cool. So you can see this and more by going to tpublic.com slash ridiculous. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Casey Pegram, our research associate, the confirmed uncrazy, Gabe Luzier, uh, and thanks to Eve's Jeff Cope, pure podcaster, host of several great shows here at the network. Huge thanks to Alex Williams, who composed our theme, super producer, Casey Pegram, Christopher Hasiotis, here in spirit, soon to be here corporeally, or at least uh, podcastially. Um, and thanks to you, Ben. This is a fun one. Or, or you know, fun being a, a loose term. Agreed, agreed on all counts. Thanks so much, Noel. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon waterways can go where the big ships can only dream, through winding passageways, rolling vineyards, and castled hills, into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card.